Hey, Cracked fans. With the summer months just around the corner, we know all of you are beginning to think about how you can best maximize your chances to improve your game with the warm weather. Well, thankfully, we here at Cracked Rackets are so excited to tell all of you about the 254 Tennis Camp happening this summer at Baylor University. Now, over the course of three weeks in June, starting June 12th through the 16th and ending June 26th through the 30th, you'll have the opportunity to learn from from some of the best coaches in the business in an all-encompassing tennis experience. You'll have the opportunity to improve each and every part of your game, whether that be on the singles court, whether that be on the doubles court, through drilling, through point play, match play as well. You'll also, of course, receive a free t-shirt for participating in the camp, but also have the chance to see yourself broadcasted as our Crack Rackets team will be providing coverage of the final day each week at this 254 tennis camp. Again, you'll have the opportunity to learn from some of the best coaches in the business. I promise Coach Michael Woodson and the Baylor team going to make it an extraordinarily enjoyable time. How can you get signed up today? Well, you can learn more information by visiting the Baylor website by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp. Again, that's baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp to sign up today. Now, this camp open to any and all entrants, but limited only by age, number, grade level, and or gender. Again, you can learn more about this camp by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp today. Don't miss out, folks. Going to be three very exciting, fun weeks of tennis down at Baylor University. Be sure to sign up for the 254 Tennis Camp happening at Baylor today. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, June 2nd. The final is set for the 2022 French Open Women's Singles Competition. It's going to be top seed Iga Sviantek as expected. She cruises in another straight set victory over Daria Kasatkina, but perhaps most excitingly for tennis fans everywhere, it's going to be 18-year-old Coco Gauff reaching her first Grand Slam singles final of her career. She continues to advance in straight sets. This time, it's over Martina Trevisan. Again, for Coco Goff, the 18-year-old, she's yet to drop a set at this 2022 French Open. 29-10 and 10 now overall in her clay court career at the WTA level. Is she a deserving finalist, or is she just the best of the rest right now in this WTA field? That's a question we can explore on today's podcast as we recap each of these seven semifinal matches as we preview our 2022 French Open Women's Singles Final. Of course, tomorrow we've got our men's singles semifinals and both matches promise to be exciting. Simply put, if Marin Cilic continues to play as well as he has these past two rounds, is there any reason he can't win this 2022 French Open? I think that's a discussion worth having. Of course, certainly he faces off a guy in Casper in Rude who, after the Miami final, we all may have penciled him in 
to this French Open semifinal round. Now, it has not been a direct pathway to get here. You could argue Casper Ruud has yet to play his best tennis in Paris. That said, Ruud Chilich, one of our semifinals, and then, of course, perhaps the big-name marquee matchup of the day, Rafael Nadal, continuing to pad his French Open stats. He's going to take on Alex Virov, who's into his second consecutive French Open semifinal. As such... Plenty for, for us to discuss here on today's show as we continue to recap all of the action happening in Paris. That said, as you listeners know, when we have so many topics to hit on, I always enjoy having some company on this podcast to help me do so. And joining us on this podcast once again today is a man who is off the DL, back in action, ready to podcast a man you all may know best, as a man endorsed, apparently, by Billie Jean King. Of course, you may also know him as an editorial producer for Tennis.com, Tennis Channel, essentially the co-host of the Mini Break Podcast at this point. It's our friend David Kane. David, it's great to hear you healthy and back on the mic. How are you doing, my friend? First of all, not off the DL, Gruskin. I haven't been on the DL in a very long time, but actually it's important that you brought that up because I am here to not only dispel the rumors that I got mononucleosis from you, but I am here <laughs> to confirm the rumors that I got it from Westhoff. So I'm sorry to blow up your spot there, but. Well, I want to be clear. I spread those rumors. I was hoping to take credit for the mono there. I was hoping people would think that I was worthy of you, David Kane. Now, I think that that judgment remains to be seen. That said, Westhoff will be devastated that the secret is out. Yeah, that you've moved on from me and that, yeah, you're on to him, which, by the way, is the better choice here. If you're asking me whose name is on the lease right now, it's his, not mine. Uh, that said, of course, it's great to have you back. And while we may not have had you on the podcast microphone, while you have been a bit under the weather, the fingers have been working. You've been busy at Tennis.com. There are multiple pieces I could turn to because I've enjoyed each of them. I want to ask you, though, which is the one you want to talk about? Because I could talk about all of them. But again, which one particularly are you proud of? I mean, it's recency bias, but we have to talk <laughs> about the story that I wrote this morning, you know, recapping the rude feud between Casper Rude and Holger Runa. <laughs> I mean, waking up to that was really, I didn't think that things could get any better just watching the quarterfinal between the two of them and some of the the, the fire and ice that took place between the two of them on the court and at net. And then to wake up the, the following morning and to hear accusations of a yes being done in someone's face, denials and comebacks from both sets of parents. I mean, this this story really has a little bit of everything. I'm looking forward to a reunion couch between the two of them. I really feel like this is this is the sort of housewifey drama that I come to tennis for. So I was really excited to write that up this morning. So do check that out on Baseline. It's been updated with uh, quotes from Casper Ruud, who categorically denies going up into Holger Rune's face and going, yes, or yeah, whatever whatever your, your linguistic preference happens to be. Feels like one of those stories where maybe half of it's being left out and the thing that that catalyzed that reaction is being left off the left on the cutting room floor, but we'll never quite know unless Netflix was was wise enough to catch some of that, some of those fireworks in the oh, locker room. Oh, see, this is why we have to have you on the show. A couple of reasons. A there's no way someone else at Tennis.com, not to discredit anyone else in the operation, came up with rude feud other than you. That's straight off the fingertips of David Kane. That's delightful. Part B, I hadn't even thought about the Netflix aspect of the alleged feud. Were there cameras behind the scenes? Very likely there were. Were they able to capture any of it? Certainly, there's some appeal to Holger Rune and following him, Carlos Alcaraz. I think if I'm a producer, the next gen versus next gen 2.0 is something I'm highlighting on the men's side, certainly. 
I would also say, again, I start each and every one of these podcasts saying storylines, results, and controversies. Far too frequently we talk about the results more so than the storylines or the controversies. Is this a controversy? Does this qualify as a pseudo-tennis controversy? Certainly when I saw the handshake yesterday, I was a bit puzzled because I didn't think the match got particularly contentious and to hear that something happened behind the scenes is at least more indicative of why Holger Runa may have acted the way that he did. At the same time, I mean, all of these tennis players put on a facade on the court. Of course they do. If you think they're all this buttoned up and if you think Roger Federer has never been an asshole in real life, I'm sorry to burst that bubble for you, but it's happened. I just... I, I, I'm fat, like, okay. Am I actually fascinated what happened? Not really. Like, it would be a very interesting. Oh, I am. Okay. So make, again, it does this rise to the level of serious controversy? No, I mean, I think the bar, (laughs) I mean, I think we know what, where the bar is in terms of serious controversy. I think this would count as something of a fun controversy. It's not really surprising to me personally that there was some beef that, that blew up after the the match. is, Is there a shelf life to this? In what respect? Will there be a further – I mean, so we've seen Casper Ruud and Nick Kyrgios go back and forth on Twitter. And perhaps now knowing Casper Ruud is more of an instigator than you think, maybe – I mean, again, yes, Nick Kyrgios has been a commonality in multiple fights. But now <sighs> Casper Ruud's got two on the resume as well. The point being, I guess – do we expect this rivalry to linger? Is there some sort of act again? Is there truth? Perhaps there's more to the to the root facade than we know. What's what's the deal? I think these are two very particular personalities. I think yeah. Rude is a very nice, thoughtful guy. I mean, he was kind enough to bring up Ulrike Carey playing the mixed doubles final today and made a point to be out there with his team to support her in the name of Norwegian tennis. But at the same time, I think Kasper Rude is a bit of a Maria Sharapova, Christina Mladenovic personality type in the, in the way that he believes that tennis ought to be played a certain way. And I think one is a player or rather specifically a tennis player ought to conduct himself a certain way. And I think Holger Runa is a specific personality and in the sense that he hasn't always conducted himself in the way that people would have hoped that he would conduct himself. And so I think those two uh, opposing forces is always going to create some friction. And the fact is, is that they're really great clay court players. They're really great, you know, hard court players, potentially. They're probably going to play a lot more in the next couple of weeks. They played four times already in the last year. You know, I think as long as there hasn't been any kind of behind the scenes powwows to kind of uh, calm down these tensions, I think it's possible we're going to see more of this explode on social media. Maybe not as bad as as this, but I think we're probably going to see a bit more of this. I don't think Casper is afraid of a fight, and I don't think Holger is either. Well, uh, Holger plays thorn-in-your-side sort of tennis. He's going to make that extra ball. As we saw in the second set, he started drop-shotting Kasper Ruud to death. I think of the 13 he landed in the court, he won 12 of those points and just losing tennis points in that fashion. The guy who's going to grind you down, capitalize on your error, and then all of a sudden come up with these incredible, using his athleticism inside-in forehand slaps, you're just... It's not fun to play someone like a Holger Rune. And you could tell certainly Casper Ruud at multiple points in the match, particularly he's up a set and a break, you know, through the first set and a half and saw his level significantly decline. And we can talk more about the mechanics of it all perhaps a bit later as we previewed the Chilich match. But certainly 
if I was to say who is the frustrator of these two, I do think it's the instigator. It would be Holgerun moving forward. I absolutely will see him frustrating the hell out of opponents because I think when a Yannick Sinner beats you, a Carlos Alcaraz beats you, who are the other te- – I know you know Sinner's now 20 years old, but the other former or current teenagers having success on tour, you see the weapons. You see the game style, and you're like, these guys are this good right now, and I feel no shame losing to them. Losing to a whole Garuna, I mean, again, it's like losing to the 12-year-old who's just a grinder when you're 14 or 15. No, 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 not the 12. I'm saying like the young, super talented player who may not have the clear-cut weapons that you, the older, more developed player, have. And Nico right Rune is going to come for you. Now, first of all, we've had Holger Rune on the podcast. Let's be clear. No, not gonna, anymore. No, I'm a fan. <laughs> I, I don't think there's a negative connotation to that, by the way. Like, you need that player. That's the contrast in styles. And by the way, did I not three minutes early? Now I'm feeling defensive. This is horrible. Why? I'm, I'm not, I'm not def- I feel no shame in anything I've said there. There's a lot to like about Holger Rune. There's also no denying if you are a tennis player, I think you can understand why playing someone like him would be extraordinarily frustrating. Every time he hits a drop shot and then laces a backhand down the line passing shot by you, you're just like, man, this kid. Like, that's just the response. It's funny going into this tournament. I think we were all looking at Holger Rune at in his position in the draw, thinking he could potentially make a deep run here. But I think the physicality is really what's been holding him back at the last two major tournaments. And now the fact of the matter is he's been able to string together quite a few matches here. Best of five sets, four really tense sets against Stefano Tsitsipas, straight sets against Denis Shapovalov, and now four really close sets against Kasper Ruud. Physicality was not the reason why he lost that match necessarily. I mean, maybe he ran out of gas mentally towards the end of that match, started to pull wide on some shots. But really to the last game was was giving Rude all he could handle. And so I think going forward, he's very much in the mix, maybe not in the way that a Carlos Alcaraz is, but for a minute there, it really did seem like that Rude was going to make a Grand Slam semifinal before Alcaraz, and that would be enough to make probably anybody crazy, uh, especially me among the, the former teenage set. I'm going to count myself among that group yeah. as well. Well, I mean, you saw the half volleys. He started serving and volleying and hitting the kick serve out wide so well, the slice wide on the deuce and just taking advantage of the open space that was given to him. And again, the skill set is there. There are times when he can dictate with his plus one forehand on the clay court in particular when things slow down, he can get away with the bigger backswing. His backhand's just exceptional. You see it in the way Korda hits it, in the way Zverev hits it, in the way Djokovic hits it. Runa has that contact point that's just so easy on the side of his body, and you can tell just how smooth he is on that backhand wing. I think moving forward, he projects to be, you know, a top five, top ten backhand. We, By the way, People love rankings. One of these days when we're less busy, we can do top five forehands, backhand serves, things you want across tours because I always think that's a fun conversation to have, um, and I don't think we've had that one yet. Uh, but the point being, yes, there's a lot to like about Holger. You know, Ultimately, that match was on Kasparud's racket. It felt like by the sixth ball in the rally, if the rally went six-plus shots, not only wouldn't Kasparud could execute with the serve plus one forehand, was his plus one more effective, but if the, if the rally went six shots, it felt like Kasper found a forehand. And he was spraying at times, for sure. There were times when the errors piled up, but when he was able to hit his forehand decisively, the match was on his terms. And again, you can read more about this match by going to tennis.com right now and reading about, uh, I can't believe I've already blanked out, uh, the uh, rude, crude, crude, rude, rude feud. Rude feud, rude feud. I think I, yeah. I think I, on the, I think on baseline called the rude boys. Uh, 
<laughs> I like that even better as well. And again, can go read that and so much more uh, written by David Kane. And of course, you can find those stories on Twitter at DKTNNS. With all of that said, again, we want to get into golf. We want to get into golf. Sviantek, the final, of course, we're running back the junior final from our junior semifinals onwards from what, 2018, I believe was that year, which four years ago, not that far removed. And now these players competing again in the Grand Slam Women's Singles Final. We can preview that match, talk about the storylines, talk about tomorrow's men's semifinals as well. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out here on this podcast, you thought I forgot. I did not. I'm going to try and sneak these in later and later in the show, just so listeners don't know when to hit that skip 30-second button. But of course, the reason we're able to do this day in, day out is because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. And it is now officially summertime. You're moving outdoors. Go get yourself those outdoor shoes. You need a little bit more traction to slide in and out of those corners. You need maybe a new string set, change from a poly to, you know, a synthetic gut or change to whatever, change whatever you're doing, the racket, or you just want to update whatever you have. You've been hitting the gym hard since your New Year's resolution. You've lost a couple of pounds or maybe you've bulked up. You want to just update your gear. You can find all the best equipment, all the best prices in one location, tennis-point.com. That promo code is CR. 15. With all of that said, we're going to start with your favorite topic here, David Kane. That, of course, is Iga Sviantek, who now, you know, Venus, Serena, Iga. Those are your longest win streaks of the 21st century on the WTA Tour. She's in that exclusive over 30 consecutive win club. And you look for Iga Sviantek now on the season. She's won over 90% of her matches as well as Iga cruises to another straight set victory. This time it's 6-2, 6-1 over Daria Kasatkina. Let's start with the semifinal performance as well. It's crazy to say Iga Sviantek lost three games and she didn't play her best. She lost three games and she didn't play her best. In particular, and you have to credit Kasatkina, who came out swinging, knowing I have to be a bit more aggressive. Yes, my unforced error count may rise up a bit higher, but you know, the longer the point goes, the more opportunities I'm giving Iga to snap a ball off down the line. You know, it was two all through that first set, and it found like Kasatkina had found a good range, found a good rhythm, and yet it was just really difficult for her to keep that level, sustain her play when she threw the high loopy balls and threw the junk and, you know, again, the, the bag of tricks at Sviantek. Sviantek was ready for it. And yeah, it generated some errors, but ultimately, again, Iga Sviantek drops three games in a 6-2, 6-1 victory, 22 winners against 13 unforced errors, 79% first serve win percentage on a 70% first serve clip. The numbers say she dominated I don't know. The eye test to me just says this was a matchup. She, it, this is just a, such a difficult mass, matchup for Kasatkina. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about the differences between Goff, Kasatkina, Sviantek. You know, Sviantek and Goff are both class of 2018 Junior Grand Slam champions. Goff won Junior French. Sviantek won Junior Wimbledon. Kasakina won the French Open juniors in 2014, and it's sort of fascinating to see the differences between Kasakina and Sviantek. Sviantek feels very much four levels ahead in terms of prototype. They play very similar games, very similar styles. When Kasakina burst onto the scene, no one was really playing like Kasakina, and now Sviantek is arguably significantly better in pretty much every way. I mean, we used to compare the matchup between Serena and Maria and say that, you know, everything that Maria can do, Serena does significantly better. And it's the same situation here with Iga, particularly off the serve and also with mental strength. And that's also compounded by this 
ridiculous winning streak that Iga has compiled. But going into that semifinal, to your point, it didn't seem like Kasakina really had much of a shot beyond just trying to redline and hoping that things connect and that Shriantek maybe gets a little nervous. But neither of those things happened. And Kasakina was really caught between a rock and a hard place, doesn't have the serve to compete with Shriantek, whose serve has only improved. You know, it's a really great run for Daria. I think she looks back on this one and says, you know, I made my first Grand Slam semifinal. You know, I outgutted my fellow Russian Veronica Kudermetova sort of in this race to the middle between the two of them who can break through first at a Grand Slam. And it ends up being Kasakina, who is a two-time Grand Slam quarterfinalist, former top 10 player, sort of back in the mix of things. But I still think there's a definite ceiling between her and Sviantec. But given the way Sviantec has created dis- this distance between her and the field, Maybe not so much of a knock, given the way Sviantec stands relative to everybody else. But at the same time, yeah, heading into that one, was it was always going to be tough for Dash. Well, I think this is her ceiling, probably, as a player. And it's funny, we hit, we yeah, saw absolutely. her hit number 10 back in 2018. She's a significantly better player than she was then. And I mentioned this stat when I talked about it going into the quarterfinals and previewing that match against Kudermetova because it was one of the fascinating matchups, two players who have been close but just haven't quite been able to break through. It was strength versus strength. And in that instance, you know, Kudermetova, number nine in hold percentage amongst top 50 players, Kasakina, number five in break percentage. The Kudermetova serve was not big enough to pressure Daria Kasatkina, and you know Daria Kasatkina's strength was able to shine through, and and it neutralized what Kudermetova does best, which is of course set up that serve and set up her plus one strike with that serve and able to play her line drive tennis. You know that said, to your point, Iga's first in break percentage. She's also second in hold percentage. It's strength versus strength, and then also strength against Adaria Kasakina, who ranks 47th in hold percentage. So not only does is Kasakina's weakness most exposed by Sviantek's, but uh, by Sviantek's strength, but of course, Kasakina's strength is neutralized by Sviantek's strength, and she does have a serve in the category in her plus one game to neutralize, you know, and to Kasakina's credit, there were times in the match where she was able to step up on the second serve return, was able to dictate, particularly, again, early in that first set when the match is, was competitive. Those first six games, Kasakina had her chances to maybe even be up 4-2, let alone, you know, be down the 4-2 deficit that she faced. But, you know, again, we saw it in the th- in the second and third sets against Jung Chin Wen. We saw it uh, for Sviantek, certainly in her second set against Pagula. Early in the tournament, she was coming out to fast starts and just blitzing people off the court. These past couple of rounds, she's had to find her range. But ultimately, she's been able to do that. And this gets back to a conversation I had with a different David, David Gertler, on yesterday's podcast, which, of course, Dalton Thieneman aptly confused you for because you are a co-host of the Mini Break podcast at this point. I'll, we'll get back to the Kasakina piece uh, and you know her takeaways from this tournament in a second but when you look for Sviantek it just does feel like the biggest enemy right now you know who's the biggest threat to her losing this Roland Garros title it's herself it's just again her best is so clearly better than the rest of the field yeah I mean I think it's fascinating again to match up Iga against Dasha where Iga is so profoundly bionic 
at this point. And Dasha is so painfully human. I think we've seen that in interviews and the way that she expresses herself. She is such a real person and not to say that Ika is not a real person, but she's really found this higher plane of existence that she's playing tennis on right now that just makes her so much more difficult to compete with. And I think going into this final, it really is her against herself. Can she deal with the pressure she's dealt with it so far? She hasn't lost a match in a really long time. So, I mean, it just feels like it would be shocking, profoundly shocking if it were to happen now. And it would be one of those moments that you wouldn't really want to see because it would mean that something quite terrible has happened because as much as golf has improved, I don't know if she's improved relative to the result that she has achieved at this tournament, but she's certainly gotten better and she's certainly proven herself to be quite a tenacious competitor. We always believed her to be the phenomenal athlete. We always believed her to be. So she will potentially put Iga in tricky situations, but I don't think tricky enough that it's going to cause her to lose the, the requisite two sets to let this title slip through her fingers. She's been so clutch in finals. It's just, it's, it's really hard to see her losing that one. Yeah. I mean, I think, Obviously, 34 consecutive wins. That's ridiculous and puts her in that elite category with, again, just Serena and Venus in terms of the longest stretches we've seen here uh, in the 21st century longest win streaks. Excuse me. You look in this streak of time since the start of of Indian Wells, because I don't want to go all the way back to Doha. But you know what? Never mind. It's easy to do. Let's go back to Doha. She's only lost sets. It, guess how many matches of the in the you know thirty four consecutive wins? How many sets has she lost? Just the two, right? To um, Ludmilla Samsonova and Jung Chin Wen. So that she that's on clay. She's lost oh. six total sets in her thirty four matches. Oh, duh. That's yeah, right. yeah, six <laughs> total sets though. Again, Indian Wells. She loses sets to Kerber, Tossin, Kalnina early on. She lost a, te- a set to Golubic in her very first match of the win streak in Doha, and then to your point, Samsonova and to Jung Chin Wen. Six of her 34 matches, she's dropped sets. That means in 28 of them, she's gone to straight sets. And again, you look across the board, she's only been pushed to tiebreaker sets in four, uh, excuse me, in five of the matches. Like, not it's not even 7-6. It's six threes. It's six twos. And even again, she struggled through those first four games. The forehand was spraying on her a bit. Kasakina was able to connect on some second serve returns and just was able to move the ball around, play high, loopy, slow tennis to kind of disrupt Sviantek's rhythm. And then Sviantek found the found her rhythm. And to your point, she's just a little bit better at everything than Kasakina. And when you look at this matchup against Coco Goff, so we can switch gears here. Here's the thing Coco Goff has that Kasakina doesn't. It's it's the first serve. It's the ability to win free points with that first serve. And you look for Coco Goff uh, today, you know, make 62% of her first serves and win 74% of those first serve points in a 6-3-6-1 victory over Trevisan. Now, the second set of that match, Trevisan sort of faded down the home stretch. Certainly, that pads those numbers for Coco Goff. That said, again, you look for Coco Goff in her career now. 29-10, and 10, David, in on clay courts. Do you want to play another game of good loss, bad loss, or do you want to just trust me when I say that none of the losses she's taken at the WTA uh, tour level on clay have been bad losses? Do you want to play the game? I want to play the game. All right. Let's start back in 2019. Kaya Yuvon Roland Garros qualifying. I don't even count that as a bad loss. 2019, Coco Goff is 15 years old. Okay, that's pre-Wimbledon, so I'm going to say that's a, a fine loss. Three sets, Muguruza, Rome 2020. 
Rome 2020. So Muguruza was... goes on to make the final, right, of that event and loses to Halep. Or no, the, ha- no the had semis. her chance. Yeah, the semis, semis plays that yeah. match against Halep. All right, good loss. Yeah, okay. Begrudgingly. 2020 Roland Garros, three-set loss to Trevisan. Well, now it's, it's not such a bad loss anymore. At the time, it was quite a shocking loss, which, yeah, is, but- which is what makes this sort of a full circle moment for Coco to get that revenge today. But yeah, yeah. absolutely. At the time, it was it felt like a bad loss. 2021 Charleston quarterfinals, three and three to Jabour. And another, another one that's sort of like, in retrospect, doesn't seem as bad. But again, yeah. in the moment, it felt a little meh. Yeah, but not a bad loss. We agree. It's a fine loss. <laughs> okay. But not bad. This is, again, the not qualifier. <laughs> Madrid, Madrid being key, three sets to number six seeded Carolina Pliskova. Mm. <sighs> Pliskova, my one weakness. I would say, yeah, it was like, it was an okay loss. I mean, it's not Rome. If it, it would yeah. have been, if it would be a good loss if it was Pliskova in Rome. But yeah. I'll still say, I'll give, her, I'll give her half marks again. Well, I'm glad you bring one. up Rome because the very next week she beats Sakari Sabalenka. Gets the retirement from Barty, but then beat, also beats Putenseva first round before getting knocked out by Iga Sviantek in the Rome semifinals. Please say bad loss. That would be delightful. She then wins Parma, goes to Roland Garros last year, quarterfinals where she's knocked out by Krachikova. I think we agree in retrospect. Not a bad loss. You look for – sorry, go ahead. I mean, at the time – It was, was a bad loss. You're right. At I the know, time – but not only just a bad loss, but it felt like one of those watershed moments. And I think it's why coming into this tournament, in spite of none of these bad losses, no one was looking at Coco Golf going into this tournament because we did feel and there was a sense that there was something lacking, preventing her from talking about having a ceiling, having a ceiling and these later stages of majors. So I think that it was a really crucial one that we kind of look back on and feel like it kind of shattered that sort of major momentum that she seemed to have been building at that tournament. Well, I'm really glad you said that, David, because – and this is an argument I've discussed on this mini-break podcast. Unfortunately, one of the times I had to do it Han Solo, so I'm glad I have someone to respond here. The loss is for her this year just to finish the exercise. Kasatkina, who ends up in the Roland Garros semifinals in Stuttgart, I think we agree that's not a bad loss. At the time, maybe a bad mm-hmm. loss, but retrospect, not a bad one. Madrid, 4-4 four and four to Halep. I would argue it looks worse now than it did at the time when Halep was a top-five contender to win the French Open title. Then in Rome, she loses 4-5 and five to Sakari. Like, that is not a bad loss, but it's not a great loss, but it's not a bad loss. Now, to your point about her ceiling, I still think the jury's out. Despite her making this French Open final, despite the fact that she is a former junior French Open champion, despite the fact that she's 29-10, and 10, you look at the draw that she was given. She beats Marino, Van Utvenk, Kanepi, Mertens, Stevens, Trevisan, all in straight sets. The argument about the Coco Goff ceiling still to, still to be had. The argument is no longer there to be had about her floor as a clay court player. She is unequivocally one of the 15 best clay court players in the world in the women's game. I think if you want to make an argument for top 10, that's why we played the bad loss game is given there's not a single bad loss on her resume. Generally, that's one of the qualifications you need to have to be one of the 10 best clay court players in the world. I think Clay uh, Coco Goff's resume proves that fact. You want another metric that'll prove that fact? You look right now via Tennis Abstract, their clay court-specific rankings. Coco Goff was number 13 overall in clay court-specific rankings coming into this French Open. 
that gets you into the quality, you know, the category of top 15. Certainly coming after this, her clay court elo will be even higher. I just think physically what she's able to do on the court. She is one of the five best movers, men's or women's game on these clay courts. Her ability to change direction out of the corners, her ability to track down that extra ball, how comfortable she is on the slide. The obvious fact above it all, she wins 5.3% more return points on clay courts versus other surfaces in her career. The slower the surface, the more time she has for her forehand. And because she's comfortable moving to that forehand and so fluid on these clay courts, it's just a different sort of beast to go up against for all of these opponents. You could tell for Trevisan, she had to start pressing on that forehand wing because Coco Goff continued to extend rallies. Now, here's the difference, obviously, in the final. Sviantek's going to have more patience than Trevisan did. Sviantek, as we saw against Kasatkina, will work you with a high loopy ball in the you know inside out or inside in and just slowly open up the space for herself before she blitzes through it. That said, Goff is going to be able to push Fiontech. Like, again, if the errors creep in in those first few games, as they have over the past couple of matches for Iga Fiontech, given her ability to win free points on the first serve, given the physicality she brings, I do think Goff presents Fiontech's toughest challenge to date. I have a couple of points. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. The floor is yours. Before the tournament, or, or I think at the beginning of the tournament, Joel Drucker posed the question, you know, is it time to retire the the phrase clay court specialist that, you know, there's been such homogenization across the surfaces and the ball speed and the surfaces aren't as slow or fast as they used to be. I think there is an argument to be made that Coco Golf is a clay court specialist. And I think because of, for several reasons, primarily of which I think, which you touched on a little bit, I think clay really accentuates her strengths and really minimizes her weaknesses. It allows her to be a bit defensive. It allows her to get that extra beat and, and really shape the forehand in a way that she's not always able to do on hard courts or quicker surfaces. You know, and I think it's it's fascinating to compare her to Sloane Stevens in the way that we compare Daria Kasakina to Sviantek, where I think Sviantek is a better Kasakina. I do think in many ways, if Sloane can get her, her game together, can get everything back in order, she is a better Coco Goff, but I think Coco is just more, it's just, younger, brighter, more motivated to play her best right now that I think that's a big reason why that match went Coco's way. At the same time, you know, as I said earlier, I think that while she has made some marginal improvements in the serve and forehand, I don't know if the results are relative to those improvements. I don't think she's improved that much that she should be making a Grand Slam final. My worry is that people are going to take away this result and feel like that this is Coco Goff's level, that she is now the, the standard bearer of American tennis and that we should expect this from her at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. And I don't know if we can or should. I think the one positive thing is that Coco, pure of heart, soul, that she seems to be a phenomenal speaker, really one of the best young voices that we, we are fortunate enough to have in tennis, both men's and women's doesn't seem as bothered by that pressure anymore. And maybe that's a reason why she's in this, this position that she's not feeling that sort of external pressure, not putting that external pressure on herself. She said, I think last year when she made the quarterfinals, she wasn't really celebrating it because she felt like this is just what's expected of me. And now it was a bigger deal that she made the quarterfinals this year and she was able to enjoy it and play much better against Sloan. At the same time, she's played Iga twice. She's lost both of those matches. The closer one was on clay. It was a year ago. Um, so there's that to consider. But I do think if, if Coco is going to have a shot, 
it's on clay. And I think the only thing that's unfortunate about that is that clay also happens to be Shantuck's best surface. I think that's just sort of, sort of the, the rub there, but otherwise I think, you know, it's, it's just, it's been a phenomenal tournament for Coco and I hope that she's able to build on this and she's able to make the continue making the steady improvements that she seems to be making. And hopefully this time next year, we'll look back on, on this result and feel like this was the start of something. I want to talk about both the Trevisan and Kasakina aspects. I also want to preview the final, but just a quick deep dive here on what we have in Inigo Sviantec Coco Golf final and a podcast I did at the end or after the U.S. Open last season was looking back at the teenage success and what are the barometers of success? What do you have to accomplish by age? I believe 21 was the number I went with to be on track to have one of those historic Pantheon careers. Now, certainly, given Iga Sviantek has a 34-match win streak, she's already won a Grand Slam. She now has multiple 1,000-level or whatever we want to call the tournament titles under her belt as well. The argument is clear-cut, and she has elevated herself from before the season being between that and in Kleister's range of player as a teenager and pre-21 into the Serena Sharapova stratosphere. And if she wins this title here at Roland Garros, again, by age 21, and that's just, again, one benchmark we're at, there's still a decade and a half to go if you want to match Serena and get in that graph and Navratilova, Everett, you know, conversation. I put Celis in as well because her prime, again, she's the gold standard. No one's going to, you know, at that pace as a teenage level. Iga, you know, I used to say no one can do what Celis did. No one can do what Hingis did either. Given Iga's 134 matches, the Hingis stratosphere is now open to Iga Sviantek. And let's just start there. In terms of, again, teenage accomplishment, we can go – we'll start there because I don't want to hit you with too many points as well. Is that unfair to say? Like at this point – now, we're a big match away. We're probably having this conversation a match too soon. But if she gets this title, two two Grand Slam titles, unequivocal number one in the world, 35-match win streak – and again, you look for Iga Sviantek, you know, just turned 21 years old, has the, the rest of the season to play with from that age and barometer perspective. Like, it, it's not unreasonable to see her walk out of this year as a three-time slam winner. And Hingis, and Hingis has five, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I think we were looking at Barty right when she retired as sort of that Hingis um, equivalent, you know, someone who manages to really dominate over a three-year stretch. And that's sort of that sort of interregnum player before somebody else takes over and really starts to dominate. And I think that's obviously been, been Iga Sviantek in that situation. And I, so it's, it is fascinating to compare the two Barty and Sviantek. I mean, I still think that that Sviantek is benefiting in a way similar to the way Barty uh, benefited from sort of just a weaker field. I mean, it felt like the field was sort of starting to catch up in Indian Wells in Miami and they really slid back in Madrid and Rome. It just hasn't been, the same level of competition that, that Sviantek was starting to get at that start of her sunshine swing. That said, Sviantek is just such more of a natural talent, such a better ball striker, just a better tennis mind, and in my opinion, a better athlete that I'm, I'm not as miffed, I guess, at Higa picking up all of these accolades. But I think, yes, yeah, she's very much, if she can win this, this title tomorrow, there is an argument to be made that she's starting to approach these sorts of big milestone moments. I mean, I think Ika is one of those players that you cannot yet rule out of the GOAT debate, you know, that hypothetical <laughs> GOAT conversation. I think maybe if she were to lose tomorrow and if tomorrow is a big catastrophe, then maybe I would be ready to rule her out at that point. But if she wins tomorrow, I don't think you could rule her out. 
Yeah. On the flip side, Coco Goff now overall in her career WTA Tour level events. And again, she just turned 18 years old. She still has three years to play with in terms of this trajectory. I talk about pre-21 with Sellis, with Hingis. And why I use 21 is that's really obviously Sellis. You know, terrible tragedy for her early on in her career. The majority of her sex, uh, success, therefore, came uh, before the age of uh, 22. You know, again, Goff still has three years to play with. You look for Coco Goff, 86 and 42 overall to date. That's a 67% win percentage. That's not the Sharapova Serena level. They were 70, 75 towards the end of their time, closer to 80. Obviously, that's why Iga is there now. 67% though, that's the Hennen, you know, Enin Kleister's range. You look for her as well now. She's made five, you know, second weeks in, in Grand Slams in her careers. I believe she's played what? A grand total of, let's look at this. I don't want to get the number incorrect. She's played a grand total of 13 Grand Slams in her career. She's made the second week at five of them. Again, that's all before the age of 18. She now has two quarterfinals to her name. Obviously, the Grand Slam final here at Roland Garros, two titles uh, to her name as well we talk about the goat debate and not to put this sort of pressure on her but again trajectory wise this is the sort of big results you need this you know catapults her back into that discussion and it's not to say there was stagnation for her over the past few seasons it had been steady growth in my opinion it just was there was no massive leap forward for her she continued to get better on the margins the forehand improved by two percent three percent she cleaned up the return of serve the first serve a little bit more power a little bit better plays the service numbers for her uh you look over the past few seasons coco golf hold percentage uh you know again has gotten higher in each of the last three years peaking at a career high 72.3% last year. To your point, and we get back here, obviously the draw broke perfectly for her. But this is the sort of result you need to say, well, I am better than the best of the rest. Like, you know, again, it win the draw. It, it To her credit, she hasn't dropped a set. No, I mean, I think she's gotten the perfect sort of range of players that she can yeah. kind of use her signature brand of sort of just athleticism and tenaciousness to sort of just outlast these sorts of, you know, quirkier, more inconsistent players, you know, like and it's, it was fascinating to see her up against Elise Mertens. I mean, a Coco Goff who has all the charisma in the world against a player with all the charisma of her doubles partner. I mean, like just is not, yeah. just not, it's just total opposite in terms of star quality. And I think the way that Goff has been able to conduct herself through this tournament is really admirable and fantastic. Again, I just it's it's weird to think of her now as a potential Grand Slam finalist, Grand Slam champion, because I don't know, to your point, yes, 2% improvements. I just think so much of her big results have been through, you know, some some good some good draws and the fact that she's just a phenomenal athlete and a phenomenal competitor. I mean, she is a 10, I think, in terms of athleticism, competitive spirit, tenaciousness. I mean, these are all very important qualities that a lot of players at the top 10 wish they had and are clearly are lacking in because they're not making it to the ends of these tournaments the way Coco is now. But at the same time, there's a lot of technical deficiencies that I worry will hold her back with the, I think the pressure on top of those technical deficiencies are often what keeps her from winning more matches. And so if she comes out of this emboldened from the result and feels like she can replicate this now against, you know, stronger opposition, then, then she really is potentially one of the most dangerous players. If she can work on that for really, if she can improve that forehand, I think there's an argument to be made she's a top five player, like a top three, top five player. If she can really 
fix that forehand. And I think that's a problem that we're really starting to see coming out of that Patrick Moritoglu camp is that he can't really build a forehand from scratch. I mean, we're seeing it in Coco Golf. We've seen it in Linda Fervatova. It's just, it, it's, it's a shot that really needs to be clean. And there's like a loosey goosey herky jerkiness that again, clay can mask, but not enough. And I think that that's something that Iga is really going to expose tomorrow, barring any major meltdown. Yeah. I think when you look for golf and you mentioned it earlier, again, the forehand is just so much more effective and her ability to hit that ball on the run, how heavy it is, how loopy it is. It just buys her more time to get the point back to neutral. I mean, again, Looking back in history, and let's talk big picture here, Sviantec versus Goff. Obviously, we had the all-teenage affair. Fernandez was 20, however old at the time at the U.S. Open last year between her and Raducanu. That said, Raducanu, rather unexpected, didn't have the cloud. Yes, well, I guess for her, she had just made the big Wimbledon run. So there was a little bit more equity bought up, but not the sort of equity certainly Goth has built through the early you know, three years of her career. Iga Sviantek already a Grand Slam title. I think the pedigree certainly higher in this one than that one. And that got me thinking because, again, the next decade, you know, 10 years from now, Iga Sviantek will be 31, Coco Goff will be 28. We could be seeing this matchup for the next decade, whether it's quarterfinals, semifinals, finals at Roland Garros for many years to come. And it just got me thinking, again, in terms of Grand Slam finals we've had over the past few seasons, is this the best matchup we've had on the women's side in quite some time? Certainly to have Ashley Barty undefeated playing the level that she was in Australia, that was one half of the equation. But with all due respect to Danielle Collins, I just don't think the combined star power of the two matches what you get in a 34-match win streak, Iga Sviantek and the rising star that is Coco Gauff. You know, again, I'm not going to list them all for you. The nominees I would have for matchups that were perhaps as good, Vika versus Osaka U.S. Open, simply because we didn't get it in the Western Southern Open final the week before. Obviously, Naomi Osaka choosing to boycott the match, uh, standing in solidarity. I be- I, I'm blanking. I apologize. But it was her semifinal, but she gave a walkover because of injury. Yeah. Or was that the semi? I thought that was... She boycotted the semis. That's what it got was. Got to play it and then gave Vika a walkover in the final. And so to get to see that match in the final, certainly that was a fun matchup. Two players who tennis players, I think, enjoy, but I still don't know if that version of Victoria Azarenka has the star power or the cachet of these two right now, even with Osaka in the mix as well. You know, Andrescu versus Serena was pretty freaking hype in 2019 and those semifinals in general and just the course of that tournament was particularly delightful. The other one I would turn to would be 2018 Osaka versus Serena in New York. Now, again, Wozniacki versus Halep in Australia is the one the tennis nerds will love, but let's just be honest. Those two do not have the star power that these two bring into this final. And just, again, the the opportunity and the chance to look forward towards the future and say, is this, you know, again, the next 10 years that we're looking at, I would say probably the best final since 2018 U.S. Open, Osaka-Serena. Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, it's, it's I mean... Star power is such a hard thing to yeah. measure. I think certainly for people who have been on the Coco Golf hype train, as I think many of us have been in the tennis world, this is a big deal that she's in a Grand Slam final, but it is fascinating that it should come probably when people were looking at her the least. As solid as she's sure. been on clay, 
she was not coming up in these dark horse conversations. She had a, had a fine clay court season. She didn't have a great clay court season. I think people might've been looking more at Jesse Pagula as the potential French Open finalist over a Coco Goff. But I think Coco Goff is a star. I think there is nothing that can be said against that. I think Iga Svantec is working her way towards being a star. I mean, I think the fact that she was not chosen to be a match of the day by tournament director Amelie Moresmo is a little damning indictment of, of what people think of Iga as sort of just a personality. I think among tennis nerds, to your point, I think Iga is very fascinating. She reads books and she's quite, you know, intellectual. And I think a lot of the people in, in, in the tennis press circles really appreciate the things that she brings to press conferences. I think you know, I think what's so fascinating about this current crop of players is sort of the the way that they break into this sort of introvert extrovert camp. And I think obviously um, Coco is a tremendous extrovert and, you know, Iga's equal and opposite in terms of her introversion. I mean, I think we look at a Sabalenka as an extrovert, a Bedosa as an extrovert. I think these are maybe the sorts of personalities that we would want to see in Grand Slam finals for sort of that optimum star power wattage. But I think looking back over the last few years, I think there have been some pretty fascinating matchups. I think Barty Pliskova last year's Wimbledon final was sort of a high power matchup given the way the semifinals came out. We were going to get a big final no matter what came out. So I think there was some hype heading into that championship weekend. I think Serena versus Halep at the Wimbledon final the year before was another big, big matchup for the two of them. Obviously, it sort of fizzled with the way that Halep played as phenomenally. She really took the racket out of Serena's hands. But I think, yeah, I think you look at Serena Osaka, even at, it's, it's certainly different. I feel like from an Iga Kennan in 2020, I think it's sort of a different, a very different look. I think Kennan has never had sort of the wattage of a Coco Golf, And obviously Iga was very brand new on the scene. So I think in terms of what we could have gotten based off of the second week and where the draw was heading, the top 10 seeds sort of all exiting en masse, I think we were maybe looking at Alayla Fernandez to maybe take advantage of this draw, but I think either her, Coco Goff, I think we certainly ended up with one of the best possible scenarios given how strangely things were going for that first week. So I think all of which to say some high power Star Watch. I don't know if it's the, the biggest in that many years, but I think it's certainly it's a big one, especially looking towards the future. My continued take for this tournament and one of the takeaways is that that Anisimova Fernandez match is the best match we've seen on the women's side. I mean, how was... pissed off is I mean if I'm a, uh, oh my if I'm Amanda Anisimova, yeah. I am so mad that I, I yeah. didn't that I didn't close that match out because then you not only lose to Leila Fernandez, who you probably feel like you should have beaten. Fernandez is injured, jams her toes in the very next match against Martina Trevisan, who then Trevisan takes full advantage. Who Anisimova matchup wise that forehand into her backhand with her size anisimova smokes trevisa yeah i think amanda makes the semifinals and then i would love to see that coco golf amanda oh anisimova semifinal. god would that match have been delightful a total missed opportunity there for amanda but i think it's, it goes to show again going back to tenaciousness and athleticism and, and motivation coco has that that's why coco is in the final and that's why amanda lost in the third round so it's certainly when i say that and i and i then you know, harp on some technical hitches for Coco's game. I am not denigrating what Coco does bring to the table because she brings a lot and it's why she's in a Grand Slam final. It's why she'll very likely be in another. And this is, I, Colette Lewis got mad at me yesterday when I talked about putting footnotes on titles. And I'm not saying an asterisk, but one of those things you think about. Again, like if Anisimova gets through Fernandez is one of the footnotes you have when you look at this 2022 French Open. Because Fernandez, not to take anything away from her, she was exceptional. But, you know, again, Anisimova had her chances to go up a break early in that third set. Fernandez fought them off, was taking the ball early on the rise. But, man, Anisimova was playing such good tennis. And you just do – I do think from a matchup perspective she gets through Trevisan. Yeah, I'm not saying she was going to beat Goff for certain. 
I'm saying that match would have been delightful for certain. Where I would push back is, again, looking at what Iga Swiatek has done with her win streak and just, you know, the history of getting to that 34 number and how few times it's been seen in the women's game. Doesn't winning appeal to everyone? Like, to all sports fans? 34 wins. Again, no. name something you've done 34 times in a row successfully. Like, I want one of the 34 podcasts, last 34 podcasts we've done back. I can tell you that. I think everyone has something they've done in the last 34 times that they would want back. That in itself is worth following. The ascension of this superstar Plus then, to your point, everything Coco Goff brings, both on and off the court as well. I really like this final. It's funny to look at Egan and compare her to, you know, winningest players and successful players, players who, you know, sort of make their their name on just how, how successful they become. You look at sort of big three, Serena Williams, Venus Williams archetypes. I think you kind of have to have a tremendous big personality, like a, like a Nadal, like a Djokovic, like a, like a, Venus, like a Serena Williams or you have to bring some kind of immutable style to the game, the way that a Roger Federer did or a Venus Williams. I mean, they're just sort of the way there's a presentation to winning that Iga hasn't quite found yet. I think she's, you know, she's the consummate jock. She puts her head down, she gets the job done, but I do think in women's tennis and I think in men's tennis too, because I think to your, to my own point, what Federer has been able to do is with, you know, Anna Wintour and Vogue and sort of be that, that gentlemanly country club aesthetic. Iga has to bring a little bit of razzle-dazzle. I think that's sort of missing right now. And I think Naomi's tried to bring it. And I think that Coco Goff can certainly bring it with the way that she you know, approaches the game, the way that she talks about the sport, the way she talks about other, other issues impressed with such passion and such fervor. There needs to be a bit of an X factor with Iga. The X factor right now is the game, but there needs to be something else. So my litmus test for this where i would disagree because you talk about the razzle i think any layman can watch naomi osaka serve and be like i want that like that's better than anyone else i think if you watch a good sabalanka day you'd be like holy crap she hits the cover off of the ball that's the player i would want to follow that's the razzle dazzle i was watching a match with one of my former college roommates when i was back in town michael Azaparty, who is secretly the lifeblood of this podcast and I've stolen too many jokes from him over the years. Truly, one of, the dumbest smart person I have ever met. Um, and even he, who has become more trained eye to tennis just by being in proximity to me than he once was, watching this match, was, you know, the first thing he points out, and he prides himself as a lifter, which is a discussion for another time. He, he look, you know, he's watching the match casually, and he says, who's that? And I go, oh, that's Iga Shviantek. I didn't say the C, didn't say anything else. You know, I was watching YouTube clips. And he goes, she's better than everyone else. Like, she is excellent at tennis. Even he, the untrained eye, could tell because Iga can do everything. The movement, she can extend rallies, be defensive. Of course, then when she's on her front foot, she can turn defense into offense in a snap of a finger. I think she is casually excellent in a way non hardcore tennis fans can still pick up on. And that's why I think there is some appeal to her as a player because I think it's not boring tennis. No, Not to be disrespectful to some of the power-centric players on the WTA Tour, but you can only watch somewhat, so many unforced errors out of anyone, men's or women's, and be satisfied. Iga doesn't make unforced errors. She systematically destroys opponents. Like I just think any sports fan will see her dominance and be able to not only recognize it, but respect it. 
and no, enjoy absolutely. it. I mean, I think she is a game. Absolutely. She is a game. Unlike anyone else that's playing tennis right now. And I think yeah. if you do click over to her match, if we're still doing that, if we're still clicking to <laughs> over to her match and well, you, you can watch click it, a mouse pad on a laptop. You're drawn in. And obviously she, like I, like I said, she's not playing like anybody else, but I do think there needs to be that extra oomph to kind of get you to be someone who can appreciate her in the moment to be someone who then follows her, follows up on her. How's that Fiontech doing? I think there's still, she's still very much a blank slate, a blank canvas. And that's even often, I mean, you go back to how she was when she won that first French open, she was dressed all in white. It was sort of like Mennonite chic because it was so cold (laughs) that week at the French open. It was bizarre. And it just feels like she needs a bit of color. She needs a bit of, you know, a stylist to really come in and she's good friends with Bethany Maddox Sands. This is Bethany's moment to really like do a makeover montage on Igish Fiontech. I feel like that that's sort of what's, you want to be a star, then that's kind of the thing you have to do. I'm, I'm not saying you don't, if you, and if you don't want to be, you could be an Ash Party and, and just be the athlete and, and collect your titles. But if you do want to be a star, and I think if you're looking at this from the perspective of we want these players to become stars because we feel like their their talent warrants it, there's got to be a, a little bit more that, that takes place sort of superficially before I think you can or become a really more emotionally engaging player. And I think she is flirting with that a little bit. I mean, she's been a bit more demonstrative on court and she says she's trying to be more demonstrative demonstrative on court. And that's sort of, you know, that's the Rafa model. You know, you're just yeah. you know, the consummate athlete. And you just kind of get everybody on your side because of how emotional you are and or how well you're able to channel those emotions into successful tennis. So I think there are two strategies for her, but she's got to pick one. I've been smiling since you said Metadite chic. That's just, that's, prime podcasting yeah it's formal luddite wear that's what she was going with in that first french open um that's good. like this is this is where we are this is the post-pandemic <laughs> realness so it's like, i mean i'm not dressed any more fancy so i guess what can hey, i say <laughs> i haven't worn non-athletic well no that's not true in champagne i had to wear non-athletic shorts i was devastated i was like am i gonna wear a belt like i i, I need new elastic on all my all my shorts i'm like yeah. worn out all the elastic at this point. oh see the the real problem with my wardrobe right now is and when I shave, I think I can look close enough to 22 to get by with the wardrobe. But like my favorite thing is wearing the most random collegiate gear one could have in the city that I'm in out in public. So, you know, I'm in Indianapolis I, or uh, it's a solid rotation of like Oklahoma and Arkansas where people are just like, I'm, I'm sorry, are, are you what? Like this puzzles me to which I get to then say, yeah, I uh work for go hogs uh or you know whatever it may be but yeah broader more broadly or i suppose big picture or small picture one match to go give me your pick david kane who you taking oh ego i'm not an idiot (laughs) (laughs) score Ooh, it feels like one of those like four and two matches. And maybe I'm colored a bit by the way that um, the Shvantec Kennan match went a couple of years ago. I feel like it's going to be a closer first set. And then if, if and when Iga breaks away, the second set may be less competitive, but maybe we'll get a bit of it, a six, three, seven, five. Maybe we'll see Coco make a push in that second set and, and force Iga to really think of things as she gets closer to the title. But I think at this point, when you have this many wins under your belts, I think you're no longer really feeling that kind of she's already done all the heaviest lifting of winning all those titles in a row. Like she can't possibly be feeling that overwhelmed at the prospect of winning a rinky dink French open. She's already done that. Mm -hmm. What difference does it make? Well said. I agree. I think off 
the sir she has to serve well. If she's landing first serves, winning any free points, particularly early on in the match, she could race out to a three one, four one lead. I do think again her ability to land that on the run forehand, even with how heavy the Shviantek ball is, she'll have some opportunities for success. You know, the inside out forehand that Iga loves to hit to set up just her positioning on that ad side of the court. Goff hits so well out of that backhand corner. It's not, you know, again. The, the problem is Iga just executes so disciplined over and over and over again. And Goff hasn't been pushed in that way in this tournament. And so I do think, I think it's a tightly competitive, you know, contested first set. I think Goff can absolutely take it 6-4, 7-5. That said, I'm going to go Iga to win this tournament. I think she's going to win it 5-2. and two. I think she's going to break away in that second set. I think we're going to see some of her best tennis in that second set. I do think she ultimately wins this title, and then we get to have the fun conversations of how uneliminated from the GOAT conversation is she at this point. But we'll save that for after the podcast. I meant to come back to this. Kasatkina up to number 12 in the live rankings, two off her career high, 25 years old. I mean, again, in this era of who's number two, She's in the mix. I mean, right now, Daria Kasatkina in the points race. I seven. mean, you and I are in the mix for WT number two at yeah. this point. I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's really a big. Not after Westoff gave you mono. I don't know. I know. I mean, I feel like Westoff's trying to sabotage me in the race for this number two. Quals, but I'm not going to see in Guadalajara right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, the gap between, you know, fourth place Coco Goff with uh, 2,077 points and, you know, 21st Naomi Osaka. And you're not even factoring in the the Wimbledon, you know, Wimbledon apocalypse that's about to happen. I mean, Sabalenka is about to lose her semifinalist points. Pliskova is about to lose her finalist points. It's going to be a weird one. I mean, I don't know what the, what the top seeds are going to look like heading into the U S open. Hopefully you get like, Hopefully the, hopefully the girls are girling and they come together this summer, play well, a lot of hardcore tournaments and kind of get their rankings back up. If who they was really good at the end of last year? It's Annette Conteve. Annette Conteve is going to be the number one seed. They're going to be like, sorry, Ika. But like Annette was just a little bit better. And we and don't she's have current, currently number two. Yeah, no, I mean, she's Number two in the bullet, Annette Conteve. No, that's <laughs> the thing is she has all of her points now. And it's like, to your point, Wimbledon drops off for Pliskova, for Sabalenka, for all of these different players. You know, Benchich has a bunch of grass court points coming up to defend as well. Ostapanko's got a nice <laughs> title to defend coming up as well. There's a lot of points on the board right now. And so, yeah, it's the players who struggled early last year at Wimbledon right now who are rewarded. I mean, that said, Kasakina. To be at number 12 in the live rankings, 25 years old, I've mentioned this before. I can mention it again if you'd like her success since August 2020, since you know uh, that's my favorite metric to turn to, David. But we can just look here in 2022 for now. I mean, 41 and 21 in her last 52 weeks, 23 and 11 overall. She's winning over two-thirds of her matches. She belongs in the top 20. Like, her floor is that she's just a tough out. Number 12 is a great ranking for Daria Kasakina. Yeah. I look at Daria Kasakina at number 12 and I think, good for you. Like, that's yeah. just, that is exactly where you should be. And it's just a question of getting everybody else in line so that they are also where they should be as well. Because I don't think that Daria is going to become, I don't, if things make sense in the world, if I know anything about this sport, I don't think she should be that much higher than 12. But, you know, 
No, the right's going to be number two on Monday. So she, what do I know? She, she's an eleven to twenty player, where it's like on the right yes. times when others drop off, she'll be closer to that top ten. But I'll even be generous and say nine to twenty-one. Uh, you know, like maybe, maybe number nine. Peek the nose in. Yeah, I'll, I can peek the nose in. That's fair. Um, yeah, Shabur Collins number nine. I mean, yeah, or like whatever. there's an injury. You know, Muguruza's out for a little bit, whatever it may be. Yeah, nine nine to twenty feels about right for her. And then you know, on the flip side for Trevisan, who fills into this Danzig role so well, she's now. Uh, what up to number seventeen in uh, in the points race? She's currently, I believe, number twenty six in the live rankings. I mean, look, it's where you want to be. Particularly, she does not have many points to defend over the next seven, you know, really eleven yeah. months. And guess what? This is the Zidancic chase we had last year. So rather than harp on Trevisan, let's play this game. Who's next year's Trevisan Zidancic? Oh boy, Parisa um... Diaz. Come on. This is like I feel like it's her. Parisa Diaz let us down, man. She went out early to Which a player is why... that I was shocked to see her go out to, whose name is escaping me, but I think ended up winning matches. Oh, Jean Jean, Leonie yeah. Jean Jean. I was and, like, what the hell? And that's why I think she's well positioned to do it next year. Doesn't have many points to defend. Makes a big push like this through all the chaos. She's my name. Hmm. It's a good one. I'm trying she to think could of be someone too better. good, though, the rest of the year. That might be the problem. I don't know. But but looking at Trevisan, I mean, I really enjoyed her tennis. I like her lefty game. I feel like she's – I feel like she very much deserved that win over Fernandez. And so I, I'm looking forward to seeing what she could certainly do on hard courts. Maybe not as much on grass. But I think that, you know, over the next couple months, like you said, she had a horrible year after making that quarterfinal at the French. So she can only go up and – did a lot better this these last couple weeks, you know, killed Muguruza in, in Chabaz. She wanted to remind people that she won Rabat. No, don't forget that she won Rabat on top of making the semifinal and had a really good run to make it here. So I, I'm, I've i got decent to high hopes, maybe even higher hopes than I had for Zidancic because Zidancic really felt out of nowhere. At least Trevisan, you could say, well, she made a quarterfinal here before. Yeah. Who gets to 10 slam titles first, Jung Chi Wen or Clara Tawson? I don't know. I kind of, and again, recency bias when I'm feeling Jung Chi Wen. Are we, are, are you selling your Clara Tawson stock? Because I'll buy it right now. I don't even know where it is. I feel this like I've misplaced the stock. This is why we need to get the game back going. Jeff Sackman, Ben Rothenberg, Chris Hallioris, myself. Let's get in a room. Let's get the stock game going. Everyone gets a thousand hypothetical dollars. We'll find a formula. Stocks rise and fall based on player results and rankings. Like we need to do this game. If I was better at coding, I would do it. Let me rephrase that. If I was more available with my mind, I would learn coding in my my free time. And then I would do this for all of you. I just don't have the availability. (laughs) Space up here. I don't have the availability. There's just not enough room. Okay. You get the choice. You can learn how to code or you can memorize every NCAA champion since 2000. I chose the latter. Um, I mean, you I know was what? feeling Queen Wen though. I feel like Queen Wen has got a bit more variety, versatility to the game. Queen Wen. Strong hitter. I mean, you, the comparisons to Li Na felt unfair, frankly, to Zhang Qing Wen because I felt like that she's a maybe a better hitter. I mean, I feel like that yeah. Li Na has a, had a more aesthetic game. I mean, I love the way that she would hit the ball, but at the same time, lacked a bit of durability off the forehand side in particular, had a bit more whip and spin on the forehand. It was, you know, knocked the wind out of Simona Halep for whatever reason you want to say that she lost that match. It certainly wasn't because Zhang Chen-Wen played badly. So I think going forward, I mean, I, we got to see Clara Towson making these breakthroughs at a slam. And right now, Zhang Chen-Wen has, has, the, has the upper hand, even though she did, she did it in Australia, but it was against Contavite and then she lost the next match. So I don't know if it really counts. 
No, not unfair. And we'll do a big stock up, stock down heading into Wimbledon. How about that? That's what next week's show will be. uh, And we can do a a full French Open recap and really get into that. Um, All right. With all that said, I don't want to take up too much more of your time because, again, we're working you back into the rotation. And I've already used an hour five. I don't want to use two hours five. Let's go quickly through tomorrow's men's semifinal previews because – we have another episode of the mini break coming out that we're going to focus on that as well on that show. Uh, but I want to give you a chance to talk about them as well. We talked about Casper a bit at the start. He's playing the hottest player in the tournament right now in Marin Chilich. I mean, if Chilich and he's ability, pretty good at tennis. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing that fifth set breaker for Marin Chilich. I hope we're all aware that's as good as you're ever going to see on a tennis court. That was just flawless execution. There was nothing Rublev could do. You could see in Rublev's face. He was like, man, like, is this guy really going to keep doing this and just painting lines and finding forehands? That said, he's older and like 33 years old. Casper Ruud played four sets. Chilich played five. Certainly, Chilich has sustained this level of play for six hours. Can he do it for another four? Casper started to play better in that fourth set in the match. He's yet to play his best match in this tournament. I assume you're team Casper here, but your thoughts on this semifinal? Well, I'm going to throw a reference at you because I am a very big men's tennis fan. I've been watching men's tennis for a very long time. And and looking at this run from Marin Cilic this year at the French Open, it kind of reminds me of a little run from back in 2008 at Wimbledon, where a Marit Safin rolls into the semifinals of his least successful slam and just shocks everybody. And it seems like this big moment for him. And then he does end up ultimately fading in the semis to to Roger Federer, who then plays that epic match against Nadal. You may remember it, but um, (laughs) I certainly do as a men's tennis fan, but I'm just, it it does kind of give me that like sort of last gasp from Marin Cilic, who I think who everyone is rooting for and, and is really felt has gotten sort of the short end of the stick with this generation is a Grand Slam champion, got so close to winning a second slam on several occasions, did not get the job done. And, you know, it's really great to see him doing this, just sort of powering through this, this what had been his least successful slam coming into this tournament. I think at the same time, you look at head-to-head, Kasper Ruud is 2-0 on Marin Cilic, including on clay. And these are some fairly recent matches in the last, you know, 18 months. So I do think that Rude has the advantage. I mean, I think going back to where we were a few weeks ago with Casper, it really felt like total doldrums. I mean, this was looking like what we ended up getting from Badosa. Unfortunately, that's just sort of coming out of Miami, feeling like that Rude had all the momentum in the world, takes quite a bit of time to kind of get back on the horse, kind of plays himself into form during Rome, which he didn't have a great start, and ends up making the semifinals there and then defends his title in Geneva. Now here he is playing some really good ball. And I, I would, I would expect him to figure this one out. And if, you know, I think at this point he's done a lot of the heavy lifting and much in the same way that rude, you know, erased the knock, well, did it again, much as rune knocked the, the doubts about his physicality off the table. I think rude has knocked some of the doubts about his ability to perform at major tournaments off the table. Now he's a grand slam semifinalist. He has an opportunity to make the final it's the French open, this is a big moment for him, and it would be as great as it's been to see what Chilich has been able to do for these five rounds. It would be a kind of a bummer if, if Rude doesn't ascend to where he really should and make this final. 2008 me, if I was hosting this podcast, a 2008 bar mitzvah year. That was, was very skinny that year. Oh. Yeah, I was not 
that year. I think I weighed more then than I do now, but that's a conversation for a different time. The best match of the 2008 Wimbledon was not Federer and Nadal, and that's the rivalry that would have been the mainstream conversation on our Cracked Rackets conversations. We would have done an additional 20 minutes on why Murray Gasquet was the rivalry moving forward. That's the year Murray comes back from two. That's a bicep. Down. That's a bicep yeah, match. Runs Ooh, into the crowd. I remember that day. That's the match that made me be like, Andy Murray's my guy. Like this is who I'm riding with now. The rest of the time, I've talked about that before many moons ago on this podcast. Haven't gotten to do a good Murray binge in a while. But yeah, that 08 round of 16 Wimbledon match between he and Gasquet was like that's one of the first matches of my formative tennis years where I'm like, this is the sport for me. It's formative for me too. Yeah. <laughs> 2007 Australian Open. I remember watching Marin Cilic and having a serious discussion with my brother and again, being like, I'm, this guy's an, yeah, like, this guy's an alien. Like, I mean, you got to understand 2007, he's 15, um, 12, um, which is like, in brotherdom, that's when you're talking sports, maybe the most. I mean, you're going through puberty. You're he, Here's the thing. The privilege – all right, we're off the rails here. I am going to keep you a little longer. The, the privilege of having an older brother, particularly one who's in your age range, but like it's an outer bound away from you because it's a three-year – it's two and nine months between us, but – two and ten months, but essentially – Two and three with my younger brother. Bro. Yeah, so it's it's – it's three years, two grades, because I'm smarter than him. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, but the point is, when he starts going through puberty, you get to start going through puberty, because it's just like you get a head start into all of it. And I mean, when you're a 15-year-old boy, all you're thinking about is sports, food, and girls. And like at 12, I guess Are that's – <laughs> Well, I guess in our house. Uh, and so uh, that that's Eric for you in a nutshell. And so like, yes, it was a serious conversation. The reason I think I do podcasting is because of how many car rides. It's just me, him sitting there silently. We used to, after every tennis practice, because we were on the team together for two years, and he could drive at that point. We'd drive back from practice. We'd go to the pot belly next to our house. We would sit in the car, listen to Detroit Sports Radio like for a solid 30 minutes, talk about our reflections as well at that I think my sense of humor is geared to making him laugh. Like that was always a good day. It's like if he thinks you're funny, it's like, okay, good day in, in the car ride today. Um, well, no, not good because I don't think he has the best sense of humor, which hurts me big picture. Um, that said, what what did we start talking about here? Murray? I was talking about Andy Murray the, being an alien. Oh, yeah. Uh, that said, Chillich. No, Chillich being the alien. Oh. Because 2007 Chilich, I just I was like Eric, I'm telling you, you're not supposed to be able to be six foot six and move the way this guy does. Like you're just no one's this fluid at this size. This guy has ground strokes. Like wait till he learns to serve like his body. And look, it took him a little while. And there were certainly times in the prime of his career where his inability to be aggressive in the biggest moments bit Chilich in the derriere. That's no longer the case. I mean, he has gone down swinging, and against Medvedev, he faced no pressure. Rublev had some weapons from the baseline to pressure him. It didn't matter. When Chilich saw his opportunities, he capitalized on just about all of them. It was, what, 32 winners, 88, uh, 32 aces, and 88 winners, some crazy split like that. I may be off by an ace or a winner or two, but it was in those margins. If he plays like that, the ball's just on, you know, the match is on his racket. Here's the thing. Ch- uh, you know, Rude can hurt Chilich in many similar ways that Rublev did. And the sting on the Casper Ruud forehand, if he's hitting through that ball, certainly can do some damage. That said, the neutral ball of Casper Ruud is not as heavy 
er, or as penetrating as the neutral ball of Andre Rublev. So Chilich will have his chances. And that's really why I think if there's going to be the upset, this is the match to watch. Because if Chilich has a full tank of gas and can continue to sustain this level, he will absolutely beat Kasparud tomorrow. I just don't know if he has that much gas left in the tank, and that's why I would go towards Kasparud in four or five. You know, in four. <laughs> After all that. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm going to make the Kasparud case on the other show, but I, you know, I just I felt a good passionate Chilich case coming because I think it's a really easy case to make, and I think again. If you're picking against, I already picked against Nadal once in this tournament. If I picked against him twice, how could I justify that to my future children someday? They'll hear this podcast and be like, you picked against Rafa twice in his prime? And I'd be like, well, it wasn't his prime. And they were like, what do you mean? He played till he was 52. And I was like, yeah, but I didn't know that then. Um, I mean, I think you have to pick. I mean, we'll get to that in a second of why you probably have to pick Rafa. But who are you going with here? Are you, are you taking Casper? I'm going to pick Casper. I feel like the way that he played that. But is that a heart or a head pick? I think it's a head pick because I think the way that he lost his way a little bit against Holger in that quarterfinal, but he was able to steady himself, played a really clean tie break. I mean, at that point, you know, you can argue that Holger Runa has had a better career at Grand Slams than Casper Rude in many respects because Runa has the win over Tsitsipas and Rude does not. So I feel True. like in many ways, Rude had more to prove in that moment. He was able to really outclutch Runa in that fourth set has played, you know, is on a winning streak, as as Martina Trevisan will remind you. Winning streaks are important. And so I think that there's a bit more of that fresh, young energy on his side against Amarin Chilich, who is the sentimental favorite. And I do think sentimental favorite energy tends to run out of gas right around now, if I go back to that Safin example. Yeah, I mean... True. You look at the tennis abstract number, 79.1% favored for Casper Rude. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, although you like it in this instance because yeah, it's okay. back in you. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a good case. Um, with that in mind, let's move on. Zverev, Nadal. Zverev, 62.8% favorite according to tennis abstracts forecast. Obviously, that's just due to the fact he's played more tennis here in this oh. court season. Had more success than Nadal did entering this French Open. Again, I mean, those numbers. Yeah, well, that said, Nadal, yes, he's played two physical matches consecutively. But guess what, folks? He had two days off, and I think that's the big thing. And, yeah, he talked about the foot pain, and there were some quotes floating around by Mark Lopez. But I don't trust any quote unless it's in a David Kane piece anymore. Look, if you're going to face Rafa, it helps to be six foot six with a backhand that's very good. To Zirov's credit, he is six foot six, and his backhand is very good. He served exceptionally well, exceptionally well against Carlos Alcaraz in the quarterfinals. And the amount of times he was able to find, you know, 30, 15 big serves out wide, down the tee, whatever spot he needed on the outside, he just found his rhythm. It was the first time you felt like, again, after he four or five down, you know, had his chances to break, instead goes four or five down, gets broken, loses that third set. Serves for the match, gets broken. We've all seen Alex Virev lose that match a thousand times. I won't say the words to his credit because I don't want you to jump on me. But in this instance, Alex Virov did not lose that match. He actually came through as the underdog in the pressure moment. I mean, look, he's the underdog. It's a pressure moment. We don't know the health of Rafael Nadal. That said, we saw the level he played against Novak Djokovic two days off for Rafa. I mean, again, can you justify picking against Rafa twice? I cannot. I'm curious why you have Rafa, why you're feeling good about Rafa in this one, just to get his level. Feeling good about Rafa. I mean, it was a weird match with Djokovic because yeah. 
it, it's hard to really analyze it in a vacuum because I feel like there was so much noise around the match during the match where it just felt like physically it didn't feel possible for Nadal to finish that match. There was just so much chatter about his foot, about the injury. Is Djokovic wearing Nadal down intentionally? Is he going to, you know, break his resistance? And it seemed like for a bit in that fourth set to be the case, he races out to a five, two lead. He's serving for, to push a fifth set. What happens in the fifth set, but you know, Novak gets a little sloppy. He'd been sloppy kind of for most of the match, falling behind three love, double breaks, just sort of uncharacteristic play from Novak. But at the same time, it was hard to analyze that honestly because you just had such confidence in Djokovic's ability and superior physicality. But that said, you know, looking back on it, Rafa really did play a phenomenal match from start to finish and shook off, you know, just having so much pressure against him. I mean, these, the rallies that they were playing, I said, you know, these long, long games, I said, watching these long games, it's sort of like when you stare at a word on a piece of paper and you stare at it so long and hard that you lose all sense of the alphabet. You're just like, I don't, I don't even know what I'm watching anymore. That was the amount of pressure that Nadal and Djokovic was dealing with each and every point. And Nadal came out of that match the better player and the fact that he was able to avenge that French open defeat, which was tremendously demoralizing for him last year. It, it was as responsible, I would argue for shutting down his 2021 season as any injury, because I think it just took all of the air and all of the momentum and motivation for him out of his calendar and out of his schedule. So the fact that he was able to win that match against Djokovic should give him tremendous motivation. And then you look at Alexander Zverev, who yes, played probably, I think, maybe the best match of his life at a Grand Slam. I mean, I don't think you can really argue Even against that. Even if it that. wasn't his best level, it was his most significant level. Yeah, I mean, certainly against a player who matters. I yeah, mean, like exactly. That's, that's, you can't argue about that. But at the same time, it was funny to watch it a little bit because it was giving me Maria Sakari vibes like Ooh. no one else. I mean, I have seen Maria do this now quite a few times at big tournaments where she has redlined a match that I did not expect her to win. She did it at the U.S. Open against Carolina Pliskova. She did it again in Indian Wells against Paola Badosa. She just showed up and served so phenomenally that everything else just kind of fell into place and she was able to win these matches that she had really no business winning. The unfortunate thing about that is when you're up that high, you do end up coming down in your next match. And I, I find it hard to believe that anyone other than Misha Zverev believes that Alexander can show up in his <laughs> next match and replicate that form. He had to bring a Herculean level of effort to be Carlos Alcaraz, who I do not think would have lost to maybe six or seven out of the other eight or you know, five or six out of the other eight players in the draw. Had it not been for Alcaraz in the quarterfinals, I think he probably would have beaten pretty, certainly anyone else on the bottom half. And, and there's an argument to be made. Maybe he would have had a better shot against Nadal and Djokovic just based on the way they were playing relative to the way that Zverev played against Alcaraz. So with all of that said, I would be very shocked if Zverev can do that again. And if he does, then that's another conversation that I'm not going to have until it happens. The argument for it, which I'm going to expand upon on our other mini break podcast, that's called the tease, folks. Two days off, he's still the underdog. That's the difference between him and that subsequent Sakari match, right? It feels like every time she does that, Sakari, excuse me, she is always the favorite in that next match. This is one of those instances where... Okay, you're shaking your head yeah. as if that's not no, because the final in Indian Wells was against was against Iga. So I don't know if she was the fun. She was certainly wasn't the favorite in that one. You're fair, fair. Yeah. But did she play poorly against Iga, or did Iga just do her thing? I mean, 
It was a little it's both. Sort of, the level was so high. I mean, but that's that's sort of the thing is that when the level is so high, it's, uh, it's just impossible. To yeah, manage. fair. All right. Well, with that said, Nadal versus Casper, who you got? It's mini. It's it's uh it's uh oh my god, how am I? Bro- it's Doctor Evil versus Mini Me. I mean, it, it's sort of that father son dynamic yeah. that I think we were expecting to get from Alcaraz and Nadal, but instead we get it from uh yeah. To your point, Nadal's Mini Me. I mean, for me, per- for me personally, to quote the the incomparable Jiggly Caliente, I mean, I think that it's sort of a win win. <laughs> I mean, either Nadal gets to twenty two, which is hilarious if you're someone watching the Big Three debate from the sidelines and you're watching Djokovic go. One away, one win from passing both Nadal and Federer. And now things changing in such a crazy fashion that now, even in spite of all of what happened in the spring, Nadal coming out two ahead of Djokovic and Federer. I'm sorry, that like change of momentum is just funny to me. It would have been funny if Federer or Djokovic did it to like the fact that he was able to, the tables and the, the, the rug has been ripped. I'm, I'm gesturing, which you can't see on this audio medium, but I'm ripping the rug right from out from under both Djokovic and Federer in this moment that now, and for the first time in Nadal's career, he's halfway towards a calendar year Grand Slam. The thing that Djokovic came within one match of doing last year, that's funny to me. I'm sorry. I'm only human. <laughs> I can't not laugh at that. But at the same time, you have Casper Ruud potentially beating his senpai to win his first slam. That's also very hilarious. I mean, the two of them bunny hopping together at the net during the coin toss. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be everything. It is going to give, it is going to give to the children. The children don't even know. So that said, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. I am so excited for the potential of an Adal Ruud final. Maybe more than a Schwantek golf final. We're talking about, I mean, not star power, but certainly things that make me laugh. I'm certainly looking forward to it. Should it happen? Yeah. So let I'm me, sure I've jinxed it. I'm sure it's going to be as no, good as children. That was delightful. And my last question to you before I let you go. If Zverev beats Nadal, but it means Casper wins the French Open title, are you fine with that? Fan hat. This is not Tennis.com editorial producer David Kane. This is David Kane, tennis fan. I just... I don't know. I don't know how I feel about Zverev in another final with yeah. another shot to win a Grand Slam. I mean, I would be fascinated to see the discourse of what what is the resulting media avalanche of Alexander Zverev with all that comes with that mm-hmm. being a Grand Slam champion. What is the reception going to be like to that? What? Because I do think that this tennis media ecosystem in general is not sufficiently equipped to discuss. Zverev, because I still think we're, we still talk about him in ways like he's a regular tennis player and he's, he's not, you know, he's just not a regular, there's just too much, there's just too much of a cloud over him for me appropriately to discuss the, the way that one would discuss heroics, the way way one would discuss, you know, valiance in the, in the, in the, in the face of adversity. You just, it's hard to talk about him like that. And there's going to be a urge among quite a few people to talk about him like that because it's just easier. And then there are people who just aren't equipped because they don't know the full story. Or they, or they haven't sufficiently educated themselves on what is going on. And then there's just the lack of due diligence on the ATP side. I don't know what they're waiting for because it feels like they're just rather, they'd rather not further explore it because maybe that's just, they'd rather just have a holding pattern, but there is a reality in which Zverev is world number one, a grand slam champion either or both. And Mm -hmm. that is going to trigger quite, I would imagine, an even bigger media firestorm than just Ben Rothenberg's. I don't think you're going to be able to put an injunction against 20, 30 journalists who will suddenly be quite interested in the fact that the world number one most recent Grand Slam champion has this, I don't want to say rap sheet, but certainly has quite a bit of things to talk about, you know, outside the tennis court that is, that is, 
frankly disturbing. So I think that that's sort of the game that the AT, this, this game of brinksmanship that the ATP has been playing, and it might end up blowing up in their face at some point. Very well said. Well, with all of that in mind, obviously, you all know, you can find more from David at DKTNNS. Uh, any more pieces we should be aware of next few days? Or are you done? I do have a story coming out that I prepped in advance of Coco Golf making the final, which thankfully she did. It's about the uh, the USTA Lake Nona campus and sort of the evolution of mm-hmm. men's and women's American tennis in the last five years. Lake Nona opened in 2017. Four years later, we now have a solid generation of current talent with another incumbent generation to come between your Cordas, your Nakashimas, your Goffs. I mean, there's just there they've created a feeding system, and whether that's just whether that's Lake Nona entirely, or that's just the streamlining of coaching philosophies inspired by Jose Higueras, there has been a concerted effort to building and properly nurturing U.S. talent that has borne out in a way that it had not in the uh, ends of the end uh, at the end of the 2000s and early 2010s. I mean, this is a totally different set system right now that you know it's worth exploring. I saw you want to say the aughts. You could have said the aughts. It would have been I should fine. have said that, the late O's. Yeah, it was on the tip of your tongue. I saw it there. No, it's going to be a fascinating piece. I look forward to reading it. Obviously, everyone can find it again on Twitter, tennis.com, where all of the platform for all of David's fantastic work, of course. Speaking of fantastic work, a shout out, as always, to the aforementioned super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. A huge shout out to our friends at Tennis Point as well. That additional pod I alluded to going to be a podcast with my friend from Tennis Point tennis uh, points Nate Walrith where we're going to offer a even more extensive preview of tomorrow's men's semifinals but of course again with all that said we'll be here for the rest of this 2022 French Open keep all of you listeners in the loop on everything that happens in Paris with all that said for the fantastic David Kane our super producer Daniel Westoff our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network I'm your host Alex Gruskin David what do we tell our listeners? And that's the break. And we will see you all next time. Thank you as always, David. Das Vidania. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.